All right, well, it's great to be back up here once again. I know that uh, when we started off in the night service, we had an ambition to bring a night service to the church, and we should never get into this mindset that it's, you know, well, wait, wait a minute, there's all these people who come in the morning, only a few at night, but, you know, we don't have this worldly mindset of strength in numbers. I mean, we see all throughout the Bible that God conquered with fewer and even wanted to use even fewer because it brought him glory. He didn't want them to glory in themselves. So, you know, as we move, you know, and continue on, I can't even believe we're already here in question 41. I mean, it's like, seemed like just a little while ago we were talking about it and Stephen talked about it. It was like, yeah, this would be a great opportunity for, you know, those of us who have to work on the Lord's day, we can come and get fed at night and here my brother is after a long, hard day at work, coming to get fed at night. So, you know, praise the Lord for our elders who got this going. I really am, I have to say that I've been really blessed by the catechisms. You know, my family, um, we look at uh, some catechisms at home. There's Keech, there's the Reform Rookie. And I never really catechized my kids. We just kind of went through different things and tried to study them, different topics of the Bible, and just stick there for a while. But we've also been exercising polemics at home, which is the definition of that. It's like a strong criticism or an attack on a, on a thought, you know, where you analyze it and critique it and break it down. Mainly it's false teaching, you know, so, or just maybe systematic theology. If we think someone's in error, we'll, we'll exercise a criticism of that so that when we engage it, we think through it, right? So when it comes to this catechism, like I said, it's been a tremendous blessing to me. I know some people really don't even know what catechism means. Coming from a Roman Catholic background, I know in my ignorance, I was like, well, I know Catholics, as Roman Catholics, we catechize, so this can't be good, right? So <laughs> that just shows you the fallacy of ignorance, right? It's like... uh it's called, what's the name of that fallacy? It's uh, the genetic fallacy. When it's like the guilty by association is the easiest way to say it, right? It's like, what do they accuse our Lord of? Well, this man eats with sinners, right? Well, so he must be one himself. No, that's actually, that's false. If we do guilty by association or you take the historicity of something, you say, well, historically this has been this way so I can throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think we really need to learn how to ask questions about things and tonight questions and will be addressed here and this is one of those topics where you really don't have to work hard as a Christian to to really get into preaching the resurrection there are certain doctrines where you do have to work hard like genealogies or something else where it may not be of interest if I'm not that much of a bible bookworm where I get excited for genealogies, right? I know probably most of us are in the same boat, right? Or even Leviticus. That's a tough book to work through sometimes. But the more you have a Christ-centered hermeneutic, then the more, more you will even see the beauty of those doctrines, right, as well. So I'll start off by saying the, resurrect the resurrection is the foundation of our faith as Christians. And we know this for a fact. I know that growing up as a Roman Catholic... When we would go to Easter Mass, it always felt kind of eerie. I never really knew the significance of Christ arising from the dead. I always believed it, just in principle, but I never really 
had saving faith, right? So those seeds were planted in my heart without me even knowing. <clears throat> and so Resurrection Day has a tremendous, like a special place in my heart. And as we go through this, um, I'll try to address that without getting emotional because I lost my parents at an early age. And so when I think about them, they were they were very, um, from an earthly perspective, they were very good parents. And my mother was a believer. My father was a Romanist. But when we get into that, I'll tell you why this is tied to our great hope, like the catechism talks about. Without the resurrection, there would be no Christianity. And ultimately, there'd be no hope for us. There'd be none whatsoever. And we'll see this right here. What Paul told the church in Corinth, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 20. This is not in the catechism notes. This is just a familiar verse everyone will be familiar with here. 1 Corinthians 15, um, starting at verse 17. He said, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. <clears throat> you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So, Obviously, we know that he's not saying there's a possibility that Christ is not risen. He says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. See, and a lot of times I was just talking with Nick about this on the way out the door. We believe that we're saved by grace through faith and therefore we're sealed until the day of redemption. But without the resurrection, there's nothing we have. We have no hope at all because all the person and work of Christ would, would mount to nothing. Would just, it, it wouldn't mean anything without the resurrection. And so Paul concludes here that we know this, that Christ has indeed risen. The worthiness of Christ is demonstrated through his perfect life, but also his glorious resurrection. There's no one else who could have lived a perfect life, who could have died and got up. The grave could not hold him because he is God. Amen. So when we think about this, this doctrine is all over the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's all over the New Testament. It's, it's right there, right in front of you when you don't even see it, when it's not even being named, right? And there's some overlap on this doctrine with the doctrine of regeneration. Sometimes uh, those words are, are almost, I don't want to say interchangeable, but sometimes we'll see a resurrection and there'll be scholars that will debate, well, is this regeneration or is this the final resurrection or is this the resurrection of Christ? So I didn't want to get into all of that tonight. I just wanted to just kind of stick with plainly the resurrection of Christ and what our final resurrection, what that will mean to us. You know, we can discuss those things maybe after, but... There's some verses that I purposely left out because I didn't want to start any confusion or bring a survey type approach. I wanted to stick with just this is what it is and this is what it means for us. OK, so 
like I said before, I cannot stress, I cannot stress enough how foundational this doctrine is. John Calvin stated, the resurrection of Christ is the most important article of our faith. And without it, the hope of eternal life is extinguished. That means it's put out. There isn't any. And so we have no life without the resurrection. That's what Calvin said. And so when we look how it's demonstrated that, that, like I said a minute ago, the grave could not hold Christ because he's perfect, because he is God. Remember when he told them, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, right? So I, I always love when I, when I see that verse because skeptics, when they say, well, you're, you're Jesus, he couldn't be God, and I'm like, well, why did he say he would raise it up? Because you ever compare that with Romans when it says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, why didn't Jesus say, I'm God, I'm going to raise myself? Because he is God. He is God. And that's why he could not stay in the grave. Spurgeon said, the resurrection of our divine Lord from the dead is the cornerstone of Christian doctrine. It's the cornerstone of it. There's no other doctrine that is foundational to our faith. Alistair Begg, I love this quote right here. He said, belief in Jesus and in the resurrection is a matter of faith, but it is not a leap in the dark. It is based on evidence that is powerfully persuasive. You think about that for a minute. I know we're all presuppositionalists here, okay? I'm a presuppositionalist, but I think me coming from a Roman Catholic background, having that Thomistic view of just dealing with evidence, right? So I think when we use when we use evidence, and I'll explain what Thomism is, um, that I'm not talking about the Gospel of Thomas. I remember one time this guy at my old church was like, we don't deal with that worldly stuff, brother. You know, the gospel of Thomas comes out of the Apocrypha and all this other stuff. And I was like, I don't even think there is a gospel of Thomas in the Apocrypha. It might be, but no, is there? No, it's a Gnostic gospel. Yeah, it's a Gnostic gospel. Okay. But he didn't understand what Thomism is. It's just Thomas Aquinas, right? And so whether he was a brother or not, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. With Romanism, I will always be skeptical because of justification. But it just means that when we... When we preach to people, when we study, we presuppose the evidence that we're presenting is true. And when we're challenged on that evidence and when we're taken to the woodshed on that evidence, when we conclude on that evidence, we'll find out that us, along with the skeptic, are both presuppositionalists. So you begin and you end with presuppositionalism, okay? But you use evidence along the way. And so... Jesus used evidence. Remember when he told Thomas, he said, come, he said, look, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Look, my hands and my feet. That was evidence. Okay. And what was Thomas's response? He didn't say, oh, man, that's not enough. Remember, he said, if I could just see him. And at the end, he saw him and he said, my Lord and my God. And he said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But I say to you, blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. Now, we walk by faith, not by sight, but we still have been presented with evidence. The gospel is a set of prep, uh, propositions 
that we affirm. And when we affirm those propositions by faith, obviously through grace, that is where God, he grants us that faith and he saves us. But before he, after that, when we do, uh, when we do accept it by faith, before that we're regenerated. R.C. Sproul said, the resurrection was God the Father's way of authenticating all the truth that was declared by Jesus. So he authenticated it. So in other words, everything that Jesus spoke, when he arose from that dead, he affirmed, it was affirmed by the Father that it was true. J.C. Ryle, and this is another one of my favorites right here. It says, the resurrection of Christ is the one foundational stone of Christianity. It was the seal of the great work that, came, that he came on earth to do. It was the crowning proof that the ransom he paid for sinners was accepted. The atonement for sin accomplished the head of him who had the power of death bruised and the victory won. You know, a lot of times we don't really think of it that way, but the resurrection is a part of our justification. Now, we know that we're saved by grace through faith, but if you think of the person and work of Christ, God demonstrated that he completed the work that the Father gave him by arising from the dead. And so, like I said earlier, we would have nothing without the resurrection. I love what Vody said here. He said that we are always resurrection-centered. And if we are not resurrection-centered, then we are not gospel-centered. Now, that's some heavy stuff right there, see? Because a lot of times in our preaching of the gospel, I think we... We don't intentionally, but sometimes we neglect to preach the resurrection, okay? And I'll get into that here in a minute, but we'll see how the resurrection has to be tied to the preaching of the gospel. I'm not saying that God cannot save people without that, but I believe we should purposely, intentfully, in our hearts, remember to bring that up when we're preaching the gospel to people, okay? So we would have no hope at all. I've already said all of that. And so that leads us to question 41. All right. And I know a lot of you don't have it, but if you want to take your time, you can go on to firstfamily.us website and the catechism section. You can read the question with me. All right. And so if you scroll down, it says Baptist catechism. Click on that. And then by the time you get to question 41, then we can read this together. All right. So I'll start off with asking the question, give you some time to get there. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay, don't worry about it, Chrissy. So what benefits do you got it? What benefits do believers receive from Christ? At the resurrection, all right, let's answer together. At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed both in soul and body 
in the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. Amen. Yeah, I was waiting for it to say spirit in there, but it never did. So if Paul was here, me and Nick would jump him because then the whole trichotomy, dichotomy discussion would come up. But it's fine. I didn't want to go there. I just thought I'd poke at Paul and mention that in the message. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 43, this is the first verse that the catechism mentions. It says here, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Paul told the saints at Corinth that our physical bodies, which are decaying, are sown in this life in dishonor, will eventually perish because they're sown in weakness. This contrasts with the hope that we have in the Lord that the resurrection bodies we will receive will be raised in power. And this is God's glorious power. God gets all of the glory because we know once somebody goes in that grave, there's nothing they can do to get themselves up. Okay? There's only one who said, I will raise myself up, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what the catechism means when it says believers are raised up in glory. It's, the, it's leading up to that final glory, but obviously it began... Everything begins and ends with Christ. We should always remember that. Everything, if you don't have a Christ-centered hermeneutic, then you will miss so much of the Bible. So it states right here in the catechism, it says, it shall be, we shall, shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. So you think about that. This is, I think this is to say that it will be revealed to all peoples from all time that Christ has offered himself on our behalf and rescued us, his elect, from God's righteous wrath that all of us as sinners deserve. Okay, think about that. Openly, acknowledged and acquitted. Okay, I always think of that like when the catechism said that, accepted in the beloved, right? I think one day it will be made known to everyone that God has reserved his people. And I think also to us what we've been saved from. You know, what we've been saved from on that final day, what a day it'll be. I always wonder, what will that be like? Like, how will it play out? Right. And it's like scripture tells us, but it's one thing to read it. It's another thing when we actually get to that moment, you know, from transition from time to eternity. Right. That will be a glorious day. In Matthew 25, 23, it's the next verse of the catechism. It says, his Lord said unto him, well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. So in the parable of the talents, the Lord acknowledged his slave here. It's translated bond servant, but doulos is the Greek word. We've been talking about that a lot in Sunday school lately. Um, just on Wednesday night, I don't see, uh, I don't have any of my small group members other than my daughter here, but I wrote on the board, God is pro-slavery. And it didn't trigger anyone. I was like, wow, praise God. I can tell we're in a, we're in a biblical church. We didn't have to work, work through that with anyone, right? But I think some of them struggled to see what I was trying to articulate to them, that we are slaves of Christ, right? And the first century um, indentured servant uh, mentality. We talked about that, about how that existed and how people were impoverished and 
This was not the same as any other secular slavery where people were beaten and kidnapped and, you know, raped or molested. All those things in God's economy, God's slavery, they weren't, it wasn't so. God gave clear instruction and I threw a lot of straw men at them about it. And some of them weren't able to really overcome some of those things. So I think when it comes to this verse right here about the Lord acknowledging his slave, his servant, who had been faithful over a few things. I love how the Greek is translated here. The word the word translated for faithfulness is the word pistos, and it means trustworthy. All right. Pretty boring, huh? <laughs> I just threw it at you. I'm just clouded. So it means I'm tired too, which means trustworthy, faithful, or believing, right? So that word pistos, I always like to do this when I look at usages and words. I know some people get irritated with that, but it's actually true. This is how it could have been translated. He said to him, well done, good and believing servant. You have been trustworthy over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord, right? I love that part where if we swapped out the word believing, right? Faithful, believing, it actually means you're exercising your faith, right? So when you think of this, this slave here who was trustworthy to Christ, his faith that God granted him caused him to respond in obedience here. That's why he was trustworthy. So when I think of that, um, I don't really, I don't think that they, on, on the catechism question here at the end, it's not his faithfulness that caused him to enter into the joy of the Lord. It's the work of God that caused him to enter into that joy. And that's the work that causes any of us to enter into that joy. And that work uh, that Christ has done translates into our joy in him. It's like, uh, I can't remember the verse, uh, is it in Samuel, where it says, the joy of the Lord is my strength, right? So it's God's work that should bring us joy. When we come and we worship God, we should praise him for the great things he's already done. You know, church is about God. It's not about us, right? And so when we forget that, you know, we fall into all kinds of problems. So what Vody said earlier, I want us to try to think about that, about resurrection being gospel-centered. Because I'm going to take us through building up to this verse here that the catechism chose in Matthew 10, which can kind of be a tricky one, so just bear with me here for a second. So in Matthew 10, Jesus was preparing the disciples for a journey in evangelism. Okay, That word evangelism comes from the Greek word euangelion. It means good news. So he was preparing them to go out on a journey to preach the good news of God, the gospel of God. So in the first few verses we see in the narrative of who was there, it names all the disciples, and it also goes over the instructions that the Lord gave them. And then from verses 5 through 15, Jesus instructed them on what they could expect and how to engage the lost. By the way, this is a great example of why we should train our people how to do evangelism. It's imperative because when we go out there, we're going to have all kinds of objections from every angle. And I believe that that's what stumps a lot of us is because it creates some pretty heated discussions sometimes, right? And if we're not prepared for that, 
You know, it's just like ask any of these young people who've been to junior college or state college or um, university level. I often talk with Daniela Perez and I'm like, wow, you went to UC Davis? She's like, yeah. I said, man, that's the gauntlet, right? It's like you survived there. And usually their tactics are different. Some students survive by staying quiet. Other ones are outspoken, but the outspoken ones are going to have some pushback and they're going to have some problems just like we are when we present the gospel. So when our Lord gave the disciples here, he trained them how to exercise discernment, how to know when to continue to engage and how to know when to back off and shake the dust off your feet. Okay, that's something that's really important. Like we talked about this uh this meeting we had at LMC the other day, there, were, there comes a time when you stop engaging. I mean, the, the Proverbs, when it says, answer a fool according to his folly. Okay, then it says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, right? Lest he be wise in his own eyes, right? And the other one says, lest you be like him, right? It takes two fools to tangle, right? So there's a time when you back off or else you're going to be the fool for keep on going. So... We, we can best believe that as these angles came at the disciples, our Lord prepared them from that time when he told them what to take. He also told them what to expect, and he ta- also told them how they could deal with what they were going to be assaulted with. And I think a lot of us just put evangelism, I know myself included, when you know you're going to have to argue with people, sometimes you can just tend to put that on the back burner and say, you know, I don't I don't really I'm not in the mood for that today. Right. You know, but one of the things that I'm very grateful for is we've got some brothers here where we mix it up theologically. And that kind of keeps us prepared for how to argue with someone graciously. Right. So, like I said, if as a believer, if you're not comfortable, then you need to take a minute to understand and think that we're armed with truth. Why would we not be comfortable? Right. God can overcome all of those feelings that we have towards lack of comfort. And so if we think of what we're armed with, truth that no one else possesses, going back to the resurrection, we have the only answer for humanity that they're groping in the dark for. Everybody's going to die. Everybody's going to die. No one escapes death whose name is not Jesus. Okay, And so when we're engaging people, we should understand that we have the ability to meet their greatest need. So that should give us boldness. And that should be a simple reminder. So in the next verse, leading up to the catechism verse, Jesus said, behold, I send you out in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Remember, I was just talking about discernment, right? So a serpent, when it's moving around, it knows when to strike. It knows when to strike and it knows when to back off, right? So I love how our Lord gave us that to understand you're going to be out here in the midst of wolves. There's danger, but you need to be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. That's how we should be as believers, right? But that takes discernment. That takes wisdom. And so I say this so that we must be equipped to defend our faith, especially the resurrection, because this is our hope that anchors us to Christ. So in the next Like 15 verses, Jesus' instructions on this discernment, he also warned them of the dangers they would face, possibly even death. As they were shining light 
it could cost them their life. And we live in a country where more than likely it won't, but you never know. It's still a depraved world, right? So in verse 32, Jesus has said, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I also will confess before my father who is in heaven. So those who place their faith in Christ, they will have their names confessed in heaven to God the Father. On the last day, when Jesus raises up his bride, he will confess to the Father all of those whom he has given to Christ. Those who are written in the Lamb's book of life from eternity past, from the foundation of the world, those are the ones who will be confessed to the Father in heaven. So I think a lot of times when we see a verse like this, the reason why I did that buildup is we see all this instruction in chapter 10. We see all this going out. We see all this preparation for what they're going to face. But then all of a sudden, out of the blue comes this, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him also will I confess before my father who is in heaven. Then all of a sudden, it switches off to the end, right? So a lot of times that stumps believers, but we need to understand that our eternal God communicates to us in ways that we can understand, right? Anthropomorphically, he dummies things down for us, right? So this next one in the catechism, and remember, the resurrection, like I said, it has to be a part of our evangelism. But this next one kind of demonstrates the mystery of our final resurrection. Because when we get to there on that last day, there's a lot of things that aren't really revealed to us, but there are some things that are. So in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, it says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it is not yet revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So here the apostle stated that it had not been made known the details, all of the details of what believers final resurrection will be. But here's what we do know. We know that we'll have glorified bodies. I don't think there's any debate. I've ever read any debate on any commentary that's credible anywhere about glorified bodies. Some say this will be a restoration of the first Adam. I don't believe that. No disrespect to those brothers, but we have a greater Adam who is supreme. I think Pastor Nick talked about that earlier today. And unlike the first Adam who could sin, we will not be able to sin. We won't. There won't be any more death. Sin brings forth death, right? So it's kind of one of those verses that's implied that we won't. It doesn't just say that outright, at least I'm not aware of any, but Revelation 21 is uh, where I'm referencing there. We'll be sinless. And what does that look like? Just think about this for a second. No sinner has ever been sin free without the ability to sin. No sinner has ever been sin free without the ability to sin. Remember, Adam fell and he became a sinner, right? He had the ability to sin before he fell. Okay, unlike Adam, we won't have that ability anymore. And even when Adam hadn't sinned, he still could sin. So I think that's what makes us different than that. 
And so I'm not sure that our minds that really understand the weight of all of that, because obviously we've never experienced it. We don't know anyone who ever has. But when we're raised, just think about this. There'll be no more idolatry. None whatsoever. Think of all the idols we have in our lives. So we talk about the benefits of the resurrection. We will not have any more idolatry in our lives. We won't have any more coveting. Just think about how often we covet. It's rooted in our discontentment, right? And idolatry and covetousness is what in the Bible? Witchcraft, right? It's witchcraft, okay? We won't have to worry about that. There'll be no more lust, okay? All of us here who are adults and even some of you younger people, you understand that's a problem as well, right, for us. There'll be no more hatred. There'll be no more hatred, no more self-righteousness, no more hospitals. Think about that. There'll be no more hospitals. Annie, you'll be unemployed in that aspect. No more hospitals, no more legalism, no more lawlessness, no more pride. <laughs> That's one that we all have, right? I mean, we all have all of these to one degree or another. No more discouragement. That's one I'm really looking forward to. I mean, I'm looking forward to all of them, but boy, is it rough when we get discouraged sometimes, right? Because it usually starts with deception. And then it just gets worse from there. But there'll be no more deception either, right? So praise the Lord, we won't have any of that. There'll be no more laziness, no more gluttony, no more theft, no more theological error. I don't have to worry, man, do I have this right? We'll be learning, our faith will be sight. We'll be learning how, how, how glorious our God is for all eternity. And remember, this starts with when we are raised. Okay, now, of course, at our death, we'll be freed from those things as well, right? Whichever one comes first. Okay, we'll get into that here in a second. All right. So we will have glorified bodies. Like I said, no one, this is one to really think about right here. No one in human history has ever appeared on earth in a glorified body. Now, I'm not just talking about like the transfiguration, which I believe was a vision, right? There's all kinds of different debates on that, but I believe it was a preview of the kingdom of God. But no one in human form, maybe, I don't know, that I could think of, had what the Lord Jesus had, right? Now, we could think of maybe some instances where people were taken up or, you know, the layers were peeled back here and there, but just think about that. Jesus ascended into the atmosphere off into heaven, right? But he arose from the dead. He was, and, and we shall be like him, right? We'll see him as he is. So there was this, there was this aspect that I think that we really don't understand about when he is raised, right? There'll be certain things that we wonder, what will that be like? Well, I'll get into that in a minute, but I want to spoil some of it because it's just, they recognize Jesus in his glorified body. So we always wonder, well, I, how will I be? Will I look like this? Well, I believe that we, we shall be like him. That's all we can go off of in 1 John 3 is that they recognized him. And guess what? He ate food. <laughs> I love to eat food. So, you know, he ate. He ate food. So I believe there'll be food in heaven, right? So I won't spoil all of it, but we'll get into that in a minute. But one of the other benefits that we have 
from the resurrection of being united with Christ is that our loved ones who have fallen asleep will be reunited with them. And that was that was a really hard one for me to think about because I'm not sure if my dad was saved. You know, he was a Romanist. There were some things in the end of his life where he was seemed to be calling out to the Lord at the time. I wasn't a believer. I didn't know what I was really seeing. But I'm so thankful that it's it's God who has mercy, right? It's not really dependent on us in any way. It's not. And so whether he's there or not won't ruin my joy because God will wipe away those tears. And even now that he's been gone for over 20 something years, I think I still think about him all the time. I tell my kids stories about him. But my mom, I really believe was a believer. And I believe that I will see her again in glory. And that's one of the great benefits of being a Christian is that when we have our hope in Christ and we know someone else who does, when we die, that's not the end. We will see them again in glory. And so that's why Paul said we sorrow as those who, but not as those who have no hope. The hard part is when we're not sure about their salvation. That is the hardest part. And so you have to wait until glory like me when it comes to my father, right? And when I struggle with this sorrow, you know, I think about what King David did. What did he do in 1 Samuel when he was struggling? Who remembers? He encouraged himself. How? He encouraged himself in the Lord. Okay? That's why we really need to know our Bible so that when we're struggling, we can preach to ourselves. When no one else is around, we can, we can recall those verses and we can say them out loud and then we can pray and say those verses out loud again. You know, Psalm 55, 22 is one of my favorites. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. That's one of my favorite verses because we're constantly having to cast our burdens on God and Christ will sustain us. Okay, so that's how we encourage ourselves. We know that anyone who dies in Christ, we rejoice in the mercy of God because they will experience that resurrection just as we will. And so we can remain steadfast in our hope. But if someone dies outside of Christ, we must remember that they are getting what we should have gotten. Justice. Okay? And a lot of times that's, that doesn't take the pain away, but it brings us back to reality that we can't pump our fist in God's face and say, God, how could you? I love what Sproul says. He's like, we're asking the wrong question. Well, he said, I can understand a holy God killing everybody. So we shouldn't be thinking about, oh man, this person has this. Even if it's someone dear to us, we should remember, I too should be where they may be. And that's something that's really sobering. We should meditate on the praise of the glory of God's grace, as Ephesians 2 says. Because God's grace is glorious. We can't demand it. We don't deserve it. And so when we think about it that way, it always brings me back down to reality. Because at times, even as a Christian who believes in the doctrines of grace, I struggle. I struggle sometimes. And I'm like, wow, Lord, I, I, can, I can understand how Abraham, when he said, far be it from you, Lord, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And God spoke truth to him. And brought him back down to reality. He said, just bring me one righteous. Couldn't do it, right? Couldn't do it. 
That's what needs to govern our thinking, that there's none righteous. There's not a righteous man on earth who does good and does not sin. So 1 Corinthians 13 here. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but when face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. So in the first century, mirrors were polished with like bronze, which made it difficult to see, right? It's like we got these nice little things that shine up our mirrors. Like mirrors today, you look in and you're like, ooh, I got something bit me, right? In the first century, they didn't have that luxury, right? So, but the imagery here, the gifts in this present time will not be needed when we are raised. The benefits of our resurrection is that in eternity, everything God has equipped us with will no longer be needed. Our faith will be sight. We will see our God. And so, when we're known by him, as Paul said, we won't need that mirror anymore. We won't need any pictures, any types, any shadows. We'll be with God. So this will happen when Christ returns to consummate his kingdom. And this is at our final glorification. I don't know if you are all familiar with the Ordo Salutis. The what? The Ordo Salutis. It's Latin for God's order of salvation. So when you think about that in glorification, it's not our glory it's speaking of. We don't have any, okay? Let him who glories glory in the Lord. But our final glorification is when God is complete with us and our final resurrection in the eternal state when we get our glorified bodies, when we're completely in Christ, when, we're, when we are a finished product per se, if we had to say that correctly, right? When God is done with us, and he's done with creation in this present evil age. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, I think this is the last catechism verse here. It says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Christ will descend from heaven and the living will be caught up. The Greek word here, harpazo, means to grab or seize suddenly or forcibly snatch. So the church at Thessalonica believed that they had missed the final resurrection. They were, they were discouraged. They thought that it had passed them by. And so when Paul responded in telling them how the Lord would triumphantly return to bring eternal life to those who had fallen asleep in Christ, and the ones who had fallen asleep, uh, the ones living would by no means precede those who had fallen asleep. So all of those who are alive and all of those who have previously died in Christ, they will be brought together to meet the Lord from the Oranos, from the heavens, from the sky, the expanse. And we will have one glorious, triumphant resurrection right there. And I believe that's the marriage supper of the Lamb as well. So other brothers differ on that, you know, but... I believe that this is the final resurrection. And so again, this is when God consummates his kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, I believe it's a parallel to this when he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That word uh, sleep is the Greek word dormir, like dormitory it comes like, right? What do you do in a dormitory? You sleep, right? 
Yeah, you get some shut-eye, right? So we shall not all sleep. And this is a reference to those who have died in Christ. This is where the JWs, when you hear them, they have some really weird teachings on this, right? But those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they actually believe in soul sleep, right? And so Paul never really talks about them as dying, believers who have gone on. He talks about them with sleep. They've fallen asleep in Christ. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. So then he goes on and talks about corruptible and imperishable, right? And so we shall have these imperishable, glorified bodies, free from sin, free from death, okay? Unable to do all of those things we just mentioned a while ago. And in addition to that, we'll have all of these benefits. And we have this end that surpasses the human mind. And I love this verse in 1 Corinthians 2. We went through that uh, earlier this year. Or was that? Yes. You've been in Corinthians all year, right? So it says, we speak the wisdom of God in the mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. You know, what I love about this verse is that we don't, we can't even imagine what God has in store for us as believers, right? I mean, we can, but we, we can't get the whole picture. We just can't. It says, nor eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor entered into the heart of man. I believe that it's talking about the mind here, right? This, the heart and the mind are used as synonyms in scripture. So we can't imagine what God has prepared for us in total. We can get some glimpses of it, what he's revealed to us, but we just can't imagine the whole thing. Now, these last few verses here, and then we're done, um, I wanted to flush them out, but I'm just going to kind of read them and briefly go over them. John 5, 28 and 29, it says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, I believe this is a reference to Daniel 12, but, and there's a lot of different beliefs on this, but I think Jesus was talking about the final resurrection here and that eternal life and damnation about judgment because as reformed Christians who believe in the doctrines of grace, everyone agrees on this, that there's one coming, one judgment, okay? There is the great white throne of judgment where God will open the books. I believe it's the book of death. Those who are not written in the book of life and they'll be judged by the Decalogue. They'll be judged by the law of God and they will be found guilty and cast into eternal damnation. And then the book of uh, the Bema seat will be the book of life where believers will come in 1 Corinthians 3 when it says we'll receive those things that we've done in our body, whether good or bad, right? You know, wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones. Whatever we did for Christ, that will stand. Okay, we'll receive that at our final resurrection. Rewards, per se. Philippians 3.21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
Again, our rotting bodies that are breaking down. I know a lot of us can say amen to that. Okay, back pain. What's that? Amen. Amen, right? <laughs> we'll receive a glorious one like Christ. and We won't need to worry about doctor visits or any of those things, right? And so I know some of us are looking forward to that more than others, but keep on living. And we'll all be looking forward to it more, especially you young people. You have no clue what I'm talking about right now. It's like all easy street, right? (laughs) Arthur has come knocking on your door yet? You know who Arthur is? Arthritis. (laughs) All right. See, I told you you didn't have a clue. You're just young, man. Just young. Gout, all that, all that good stuff. Blood pressure. We got it. You don't. Second Corinthians four fourteen. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. So knowing that the Father who raised Jesus us also, He will bring God. He will bring us into the presence of the Lord. Obviously, after we're raised. And then the last one here being Romans 6. And then there's one more. That's 1 Corinthians 15. For, we have been, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Okay, I love that part because we've been united with Christ through his death and we'll be united with him the same way through his resurrection. Makes me think of the verse in Ephesians where it says the same power that God raised Jesus from the dead. He uses that same power to regenerate us from us being dead in trespasses and sins. He's going to use that same power in our final resurrection to bring us triumphantly into the kingdom of God. The consummated kingdom. Okay, the one where we'll sit down and, and eat at the Lord's table with him again. All right, like, our, like the disciples did. So in 1 Corinthians 15, our final victory is overcoming death. Just as Jesus overcame death in verses 54 through 57. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Christ conquered the grave. Christ conquered sin. Christ conquered everything that we would never be able to conquer, and he gives us that victory, a victory that we don't deserve by grace through faith. And when we cast those crowns, man, it's just what a glorious day when we meet our Lord. It's like all the pains of this world, one day we will be with him. And I know a lot of us don't really understand, some of you younger people, why. But when you get older and you've battled sin, you know, you get tired of it sometimes, right? You want to be free from it. And we're, yeah, we've been freed from the power of sin and the penalty of sin but one day we'll be freed from the presence of it no longer to ever have to worry about it again and so all this points us to christ 
who alone grants us this resurrection victory. And so from here, I'll take questions.